Well, if you've uh, got a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, we continue um, our series through the Gospel of Luke. Um, if you haven't been here before, you haven't been here much. This is the way typically that preaching happens. So the, the elders will pick a Bible book and then just work through it from start to finish. That has all sorts of advantages to it. Um, it, uh, it exposes us to the full counsel of God. Um, it, it helps to set every passage in context because we've been in this book. And so here we are in Luke. And this morning we're in chapter 19, in particular verses 28 through 40. Um, there's kind of a bare bones outline on the back of the bulletin. If you want to keep an eye on that, if that'll help you as, as we move along. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Um, I don't remember ever going to a wedding growing up as a child, which I think was probably the Lord's kindness. Uh, but once I got in college and started making friends that were the age where they could get married, and then, of course, graduate school after that, um, I started being in weddings. So it kind of went from nothing to do with weddings to being in weddings. So 15 of them, 15 times where um, uh, I had to get a tux rental in particular, which I feel like now I could have put Nora through a year of college. But what are you going to do? The Lord knows what he's doing. So uh getting to see weddings up close, you realize a couple of things about weddings. And one thing that's central in terms of the ceremony is they want to highlight the bride. So everything about that service, or at least most about that service, is to be able to recognize this is the bride. So, for example, the bride has that white dress on, at least typically. And if you know wedding etiquette, no other lady is supposed to be wearing white. That's because the bride is supposed to stand out. She's the one that walks down the aisle. So she has that unique spot that she walks down where nobody else is walking down that except maybe your dad or whoever's given her away. Um, all the eyes are supposed to be trained on her. So everything about the service is highlighting who, who, that, who that bride is. There's these signals. Well, those are the same kinds of things that we see in our passage. So there's all these signals in this passage in Luke that are God saying this thing to us. And what he's saying is that Jesus is my promised king. So all these details of this passage that we're going to see, they're all pointing to that central truth. It's the main point of this passage. Jesus is my promised king. So hear the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. And we came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Well, again, this passage, it's all about God's recognition that Jesus is the, the promised king. And God's people, they were waiting for a king. And that's why in the gospel stories, we've seen it several times in Luke, people keep asking Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? Because the understanding is, okay, you're the king. When are you bringing in the kingdom? 
and they had a very specific thing in mind. They thought that that he was going to bring it in with a sword, that it was sort of going to be an aggressive bringing in of the kingdom, the way that earthly kingdoms work. And they're basing all of that on the fact that God had promised a coming king. So this isn't something they created. This is something from the Old Testament. God had told his people that a king was coming. Listen to the promise God gives to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He gives him this covenant. This is what he says. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, he's talking about when David dies, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, the immediate fulfillment of that promise is Solomon. So remember, Solomon is David's son. He'll be the next king. He's the one that's actually going to build the temple that the Lord has given him that task. But then there's this part of the covenant. It's the next sentence in 2 Samuel. And that part lets us know that there's a future fulfillment, that all of this promise isn't going to be fulfilled in Solomon, this human king. The next verse, this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. God says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. In fact, it, it lasted for 40 years. So any thoughtful hear, hearing of, of this covenant to David, this promise to David, they would have known there was a fundamentally different kind of king who was coming. Somebody past Solomon, somebody who's more than Solomon was, that God is promising to his people. Okay, so that's back in 2 Samuel. It's a promise that Israel would have all been familiar with. So now let's fast, fast forward to the beginning of Luke's gospel. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And this is Gabriel, him explaining to Mary what's happening here. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So Jesus is this king that God had promised for, for a thousand years now to David, all these years before, he's the one whose kingdom will have no end. And we saw this theme front and center in the passage Tim preached last Sunday, and then we just heard it read before the prayer of confession. So chapter 19, verse 12, therefore Jesus said, a noble man traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king. So Jesus, in that passage, he's, he's telling this parable to describe his situation. He's the king that God has promised. But in the passage right now, it's, it's not a parable. It's nothing abstract. So our passage is about how Jesus concretely and literally is being shown by the Lord to be the king who's been promised. So, so how do we see that in our passage? Well, three main ways. And this is the way we're going to break up the, the sermon. This is the outline you'll see on the back of the bulletin there. So first, we're going to see that Jesus has the power of God's promised king. Second, we're going to see Jesus has God's recognition as the promised king. And then finally, we're going to see Jesus has been given the mission of God's promised king. So, so first, Jesus has the power of God's promised king. Look again at how the passage begins. Verse 29, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. Now, as readers of the Bible, we're used to Jesus doing extraordinary things. We're used to these miracles. 
but don't let the miracles that your mind usually goes to, don't let those overshadow how miraculous this thing is. So we typically think, okay, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He gives blind people their sight. He gives deaf people their hearing, those sorts of things. And something like this, it's easy to kind of skate past it, but, but we should pause and recognize this is a, a pretty incredible thing that Jesus is doing here. So he's, he's making this declaration, this claim about what these two disciples will find when they go ahead into this village, that they'll find a donkey that's ready to go. And, and not only that, but a donkey that has never been ridden before. It's a pretty incredible thing. So that would be like if after the service I told you, hey, I need you to, to drive into High Point, And when you cross over into the, into the city line, you're going to see a flatbed truck. And it's going to have a CRV on the back of it. A CRV that's coming from the dealership doesn't have any miles on it because they just put it up on that flatbed truck. It's going to be sitting there in a gas station parking lot. So I want you to go and, and find that CRV. Well, if you did, let's say you humor me and you think, okay, I'll do this thing and then I'll call the other pastors and I will say, I think we made a mistake by bringing Scott here, but I'll do this thing and I'll humor him. So you drive there and then you find that flatbed truck, just like I had said would be there. That'd be a pretty incredible thing. That's the kind of thing that's happening here, but it gets even more amazing than that. Not only does Jesus tell his disciples they'll find that specific animal, but he tells them when you go to take it away, the people around will say, what are you doing? And chances are the owners were among that crowd. And Jesus says, what I want you to do is say, the Lord needs it and then take it. So what's implied is they'll say the Lord needs it and everybody be like, okay. So again, think today, it would be like if I said to you, now that CRV that you see on that flatbed truck, they're going to back it off of the flatbed truck. And then I want you to get in the car and bring it here to the church. And they're going to say to you, what are you doing? And your answer is the Lord needs it. And then they let you do it. Okay. That's a pretty incredible thing. A pretty miraculous thing. That's what happens here. It's a pretty tall order, an unlikely scenario. But again, look at what happens. Verse 32. So those who were sent left and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. What we see here, Jesus has the power of God's promised king. It's clear. And now by power there, we just mean he has the authority to actually make things happen. He can declare something and that thing actually comes to pass. He is the power of God's promised king. So he tells the disciples that animal will be there for him. And that's exactly what happens. And see, this is different than other predictions in the Bible. It might be easy to see this and be like, wait, but we've, we've seen this happen before. There's times in the Old Testament where a prophet predicts something. That's a big part of what prophecy in the Old Testament was. And that's true. There's times in the Bible when a human makes predictions like this. But when you look at those situations, it's always because God communicates that information to them. And the book, the passage makes it really clear that that is the case. So if, for example, you might remember in Genesis 41, the patriarch Joseph, Pharaoh needs him to interpret those dreams. So you might think, well, this is the same kind of thing, right? Joseph is gonna use these pictures and he's gonna foretell the future. And that's the same type of thing that's happening here. But listen to what Joseph tells Pharaoh, and this is typical. When it comes to prophecy, human prophets, they're always noting this kind of thing that Joseph is about to note to Pharaoh. He says, this interpretation is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. 
And that's how human prophets always operate. They always make clear to point to the Lord. It's God who's the one who is doing this thing, who's making this declaration, who's giving this prophecy. But see here, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that with the miracles either. So the prophets in the Old Testament, they're having to pray to God for help. God, do this particular thing. Jesus doesn't do that, at least not typically. It's in him. That power that the prophets in the Old Testament have to leverage God for, Jesus doesn't do that. It's in him. It's inherent. And that's because Jesus is God. And so he has the authority of God, the Father's promised king. Verse 32 again. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. That's what happens when God's king says something. When he says something, you'll find it just as he told you. Now think about how encouraging that should be for you. How encouraging that should be for me. Everything Jesus tells us, it will turn out that way exactly. He's he's exactly precisely right about everything. And where that gets particularly encouraging is when you think about the promises he makes to us as Christians. They're all true. Every single one of them. So when he tells you he's returning one day, he's exactly precisely right about that. That will happen. When he tells you that, that as a Christian, that you'll be raised to everlasting life, that is precisely exactly true. It's exactly what will happen. When, when he tells you that any suffering you have in this life will pale in comparison with the joy of being with Christ face to face for eternity. He's precisely exactly right about that. When, when it comes to Jesus's promises, one day we'll all be just like the disciples in verse 32. They found it just as he had told them. Of course, Jesus can make these predictions and promises in a way that no man is able to because Jesus has the power of God's promised king. So that's the first thing we see here. God's making it clear. He's the one. He's the promised king. But second, in, in representing a larger portion of our passage, Jesus has the recognition of God as the promised king. God gives all these signals and symbols throughout this passage that show over and over again, I'm recognizing you guys as God. I'm recognizing that Jesus is the promised king. King. So again, like we said up front, there are certain signals throughout a wedding that do that with the bride. That's what happens here with the rest of our passage with Jesus. The first one is where Jesus is geographically. That's significant. Look at verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the city of the king. In fact, when David is, is, uh, is pronounced by the people, to be the king after the Lord says, this is your king. We're told that he marches up to Jerusalem. It talks about this in first Chronicles. It says, David took up residence in the stronghold. Therefore it was called the city of David. So once he's declared to be king, he goes immediately to Jerusalem and then he sits down there. And then it's understood to be the city of David. That's what Jerusalem was. It's the city of the king. That details, it's not irrelevant that Jesus is marching to Jerusalem in our passage, it's God saying he's the promised king, right? So there's that signal just geographically, but it doesn't stop there. He's coming into, into Jerusalem. Look at the particular path that he takes. Verse 37. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives. That's another location that has a lot of significance in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives. So in Zechariah 14, we're told that the Mount of Olives is where God's Savior will reveal himself to the world where he will come to save his people. 
That's the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus is coming from, that path. I don't know how many of you are, uh, are NBA fans. Um, there's, there's not as much going in the NBA as there used to be. Uh, but the NBA used to be great. Used to be great. The 90s, oh, NBA was great. The 80s, the NBA was great. So you, you might remember Magic Johnson and the Lakers. You might not care about this at all, but I, but I think you'll see the point, so bear with us. So the Lakers in the 80s, really, really good basketball team. Magic Johnson, really, really good point guard. Okay, so you may have heard that name, Magic Johnson. It was, their center was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was a really good basketball player. He was their leading scorer. So in 1980, they're about to head to the championship game. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar gets injured. Their leading scorer, not only that, but their team leader, He's out. And it was bigger than just those points. So I'll give one example and then we'll bring it back around and you'll see what this is all about. But on the team bus, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would sit in the front seat. He would get on before all the other players and he'd get off after all the other players. And what happens is he's there in the front. All those players walk past him. What's being communicated there is, hey, I'm going to lead this team. I'm the leader of this team. So he gets injured and all the Lakers are thinking we're toast. Right. What are we going to do? Kareem is is out. So Magic Johnson, he's a rookie. It's his first year. He gets on the bus first and he sits in that front seat. And all of the teammates and all the coaches knew what he was communicating, which was I'm going to take Kareem's spot. I'm going to I'm going to lead this team so you can you can get on my back and I'll, I'll carry you. Well, see, there's there's a symbolic thing there and everybody on the Lakers understood it. That's the kind of thing that's happening here. With all these details, God is putting Jesus in that front seat. He's letting people know, hey, for a time, David was in that seat. For a time, Solomon was in that seat, but they were just shadows. So who really belongs there is Christ. So with all these details, the geography coming down from the Mount of Olives, everything so far, everything we're going to see, God is putting Jesus in this spot. And again, the spot he puts him in in these first two details is that he's coming to Jerusalem and that he's coming from the Mount of Olives. These are details of God saying, Jesus is my promised king, but but there's more. Look at the way Jesus descends the mount and enters Jerusalem, his mode of transportation, verse 35. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. So he comes down the path on a donkey again. Not an insignificant reference. So this is from Zechariah, prophet in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 9. See if this sounds familiar. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a young donkey. So in verse 33, when Jesus' disciples bring this young donkey to him and put him on it, that he can ride it into Jerusalem. Again, that's God saying, remember this prophecy. Jesus is my promised king. There's more still. Look at the way God has Jesus' disciples respond to his entry on the donkey. Verse 35, then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Okay, so what is this about? So they do two different things with their clothes. They put a separation between Jesus and that donkey. And then they put separation between Jesus's donkey and the ground. Well, the thing they're doing, they're recognizing Jesus's worth. So they're keeping him separate from the donkey. 
which if you've been to a farm recently, you'll understand that animals are kind of smelly, not exactly clean. And so they're putting these clothes down so Jesus can sit on top of it. They're keeping him separate from the donkey. But then more than that, they're putting clothes under the donkey to keep the donkey from having to walk on the ground, to walk on sort of these, these dirty streets. And just a side note here, we all understand this. That's not because of any worth in the donkey, right? So the day before this happened, that donkey is not walking on the red carpet. Nobody's putting their clothes down for the donkey. And the day after Jesus rides on the donkey, nobody's putting clothes down for him, right? The only reason they're treating the donkey this way on this day is because he's connected to Jesus, right? The donkey gets this benefit, not because of anything inherent in the donkey, but because he's connected to Jesus. That's us as Christians. That's us as Christians. The benefits that we get in salvation, our sin being forgiven, being welcomed into the Lord's presence one day, being given the Holy Spirit now, all of these benefits, it's like the donkey having the clothes put down. It's not because we're good. It's not because we have any virtue in ourselves. It's not that we have anything to offer the Lord. No, we get those benefits because we're connected to Jesus. We're connected to Jesus. We don't deserve them any more than that donkey deserved to walk on people's clothes. But see, Jesus deserves those things. And because we're Christians, that means we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. We've been united to Christ. So all the things he deserves, we get those things. Not because of anything good in us, but because we're connected to Christ. And, and if you're here and, and you, you don't trust in Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're not sure what you think about Christ, this is particularly relevant to you. It's probably the most important thing that you'll hear this morning. So everybody that you know, including yourself, including me, everybody in this room, we're all sinners. We all fall short. We all fail to love people perfectly, and we all fail to love God perfectly. Those two greatest commands that Jesus singles out. And so what that means is we deserve God's wrath. He's a good God. He's the creator and he's the judge of the universe. That means he can't sweep sin under the rug. He can't ignore it. He's too good for that. So what that means is if God's going to remain good, he has to punish sin. And see, there's only two options. Either my sins can be punished. He can punish me for them. I can bear the punishment or Christ can bear it on our behalf. And the way that works, it's not the way that every other world religion talks about it. Even some groups that would say they're Christian, the way they would talk about it, where you work hard and then hopefully you'll be good enough to gain God's approval. That's not true. That could never, ever happen. No, the, the way to get in on that, the way to be connected to Christ is through trust alone in Christ alone. Not trust in our own merits, trust in his merits, trust in his goodness. If you have questions about that, about believing in the gospel, trusting in Christ and gaining these benefits, having your sins forgiven through him taking your place on the cross. Talk to me after the service. Talk to Pastor Charlie, Pastor Tim, Pastor Mark. So, so these people, they put their coats down on the donkey, put their coats down on the road as, as a way of recognizing Jesus's worthiness and their unworthiness. And, and that's a good question for us as Christians. So, so do you recognize as a Christian, Jesus inherent worthiness and your inherent unworthiness. And again, we can think about that picture. They put Jesus up on the donkey. He's elevated and they're all down low. That's the picture. He's up there. We're down here. 
That's the way we should understand our situation. We, we should be like John the Baptist. You might remember this, but he says he must increase and I must decrease. And that's a good question to ask yourself as a Christian. In my life, is it clear that I'm elevating Jesus above myself? Is it clear in my life that I'm putting him up on the donkey and, and that I'm down on the ground? One, one practical example of that, you can think of a lot, but we'll just think about one. How do you respond to praise from other people? So when somebody tells you that you're good, that you've done something good, how, how do you respond to that praise? So, so do you accept it fully? Like you're the one responsible for it? Yeah, that's right. I am good. I did do good at that. Like it's a thing that comes from inside of us? Or do you deflect the praise to the Lord? Do you boast in God for that thing? When you do that second thing, that's you putting Christ up on the donkey, elevating him. Verse 35, then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And once again, all this is making clear that Jesus is the king. That's what God's saying with all these details. But, but then even after all these other signals, God finally makes it absolutely explicit by what the people say. And it was part of our, uh, our call to worship this morning, the responsive reading. They quote from this particular psalm. Look at verse 37, what they say. Now he came near down the path of the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. That's what they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. So it's made verbally clear. There were signals and symbols before. Now it's made verbally clear. God's people are recognizing what God recognizes about Christ. He's God's promised king. And, and we, we see a big part of the way they had come to understand that. How did they get to that point? God knew that Jesus was his promised king. How did the people come to that conclusion? Look at the end of verse 37. The disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. So they had seen Jesus do things that they understood that only God's promised king would be able to do. These particular healings, these miracles, the way he transformed people's hearts, like the way he did with the tax collector that we saw just a few weeks ago. They'd seen him do all of these things, and they understood, okay, this is God's chosen king. More than that, they had come to understand that he was a divine king, not just merely a human, but he's a divine king. In fact, the passage we quoted from Zechariah earlier about the, the Savior coming down on the Mount of Olives. So, okay, we understand clearly that's pointing ahead to Jesus. Well, the interesting thing is in Zechariah, when you look at who the person is that comes down to the Mount of Olives, it's Yahweh. God, that's the, that's the proper name God had given himself revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. There's no mistaking that. It's, it's God. But of course, that passage is applied to Christ. That's because Jesus is God. So he's not only God's promised king, but he's a, a divine king. And that's the way they respond to him. Look at verse 38 again. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that word blessed or blessed that's a synonym for praise. So there's a psalm that says, uh, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul. You guys may have sung that song here before. That means praise the Lord. You're telling your soul to praise the Lord. So that's what they're saying here. Verse 38, blessed is the king. Praise the king. Now we're given some other stories in the New Testament where a group of people 
tries to give praise to somebody who is merely a human, somebody who's just a guy, and it never turns out well. Let me give you three examples. Because you might say, okay, well, yeah, Jesus accepts this praise, but he's just being polite. He doesn't want to correct them. They don't know what they're saying. But here's some examples of, of when this kind of thing happens. So in Acts chapter 10, verse 26, there's a group of folks who bow down and attempt to give praise to the apostle Peter. Listen to how Peter responds. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am just a man. So he doesn't have any time for that, right? To accept praise. In Acts 14, 14, there's a group of people who try to give praise to Barnabas and Paul. Listen to how they respond. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. In Revelation 22, 9, it even happens with an angel. You might remember this. The apostle John is trying to worship this angel. This is what the angel says. He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. The true followers of the Lord, they never let somebody give them praise that, that only God deserves. And I think this is what the Pharisees are thinking. At the end of our passage, the Pharisees fuss at Jesus for allowing the disciples to talk this way. Look, look at what the Pharisees do, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So they're saying, Jesus, you can't let people talk about you this way. They're elevating you. They're praising you. They're, they're giving you something that is only supposed to be for God. So you need to rebuke your disciples. This is what Jesus says. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Not only did Jesus not rebuke his disciples, the way that all these other men in the New Testament resist praise the way that they do it, Jesus, not only does he not do that, but he makes it clear, this is exactly how people should respond to me. And in fact, he says, if there were no people to worship him, the very stones would cry out. That's how committed God is to making it clear that God, that Jesus is the promised king. He, he has the recognition of God. So the question for us by way of application is, is does he have your recognition? Clearly he has God's recognition. Does he have your recognition? Do, do you proclaim about Jesus what God does in our passage that he's the king? We can think about two particular venues briefly in which we should do that. So, so first, do you recognize Jesus as king with your words? It's what the disciples do here in part. They're praising him with their mouths. They're speaking. Do you recognize Jesus as the king with your words? So as you have opportunity, do you talk about Jesus? So for, for example, when something difficult has happened in, in your life or the life of your, your family members and, and maybe somebody's consoling you, do you ever say, but at least I have Christ. At least I have a savior who's paid for my sins, who's brought me close to the Lord. Do you ever say things like that in those situations? Or at work, when someone asks if, if you did anything fun the previous weekend, do you ever say, among other things, do you ever say, yeah, I gathered with my, my brothers and sisters in the Lord and celebrated the, the good news of our savior, the one who gave his life to bring us close to God, in verse 38, the, these disciples are using their words to recognize that Jesus is king. And when I think about it, I recognize I oftentimes don't do this. I oftentimes don't take these opportunities. In, in fact, there's many times in my life when the Pharisees wouldn't have to fuss at me at all. They could just follow me around and be perfectly content. 
because I'm not always taking opportunities to elevate Christ. There's times where God, God might need to make an inanimate object like a rock offer recognition to King Jesus because I'm not doing it. It's good to think in those categories. How about you? If the Pharisees were following you, following you around at home or at work or on vacation, would they ever have to tell you to be quiet? Or would they be perfectly satisfied to follow you around because you're not using your words to elevate Christ as king? You know, at your workplace, is, is there a need? Sounds silly, but is there a need for God to make the copier talk about Christ? Because you're, you're not doing it. At home, is there a need for God to make the walls talk about Jesus and his resurrection? If you're a Christian, the main purpose for your recreation in the gospel is to praise Christ. In fact, that's, that's what you'll be doing for all eternity. This is Revelation 5, verse 12. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So if you're a Christian, that's what you'll be doing for all eternity. But are we doing that now? Are we elevating Christ as God's chosen king now? So do it with our words. But, but second, you recognize, uh, recognize God's king with your life. In particular, do you obey him? You recognize him as king in that way. Do you obey him the way that subjects are supposed to obey a king? So the beginning of our passage, Jesus tells the disciples to go and find this donkey. And that's what they do. Their king gave them marching orders. And so they march. They go and they do this thing. They treat Jesus like the king that he is. But we can recognize many times we, we treat Jesus as more of a consultant than a king, right? Like, yeah, Jesus has great ideas. I'm going to follow a lot of them, but uh, I'm going to evaluate time to time whether I should follow this command or not. We sometimes look at his commands like, like they're just offerings or, or suggestions. But, but a king's directives, they, they aren't suggestions to be considered. They're, they're commands to be followed. And Christ is our king. So, so this week when you're tempted to sin, try thinking of it in those terms. I have an obligation to obey here because Christ is my king. And he's given me a clear word on this thing. So I, so I need to follow my king. There's a great refrain in the book of First Chronicles, when different groups of Israelites are coming to David. So this is after Saul is still alive, but there's still a lot of folks. And even though God had said, Saul's not the guy, David's the guy. A lot of Israelites were still saying, no, so we're going to keep Saul the guy. So Israelites had to make it clear. So they're coming to David and saying, hey, we're with you. There's this great refrain in First Chronicles. This is chapter 12, verse 38. Listen to this. All these warriors lined up in battle formation. They came to Hebron wholeheartedly determined to make David king over Israel. Isn't that good? A good summary of the Christian life. That, that's what we're trying to do. We want to wholeheartedly determine to make David, Jesus, king over all Israel. But that starts by you wanting him to be king over you. That starts by me wanting him to be king over me. So, so again, in all the details of our passage, it's clear Jesus has the recognition of God as the promised king. Well, as we close, here's the best news for us this morning. Because we hear those things and we think, oh, at least I do. This hurts. I fall short. It's hard. But the best news in this passage isn't what we get to do for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us. And this is our final point. 
Jesus has been given the mission of God's promised king. And so what is that mission? Verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. The king has brought with him peace. That's what he brings us. Peace. So our sin, it merits a certain kind of reaction in heaven. A reaction that we would have brought if we were the one in heaven. It merits God picking up a sword. That's what we would have done if we were in the Lord's place and our creatures had sinned against us. But see, through the coming of this king to sacrifice himself for our sins, the sword has been laid down. And now for those of us who are in Christ, this is what we're left with. Peace. We have peace with God because our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Listen to Zechariah 9, verse 9 again. We read it earlier. I didn't read it to the end. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout and triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. And see, the way he gets there, Jesus triumphed not by riding down on a horse with a sword. No, he, he came in riding empty-handed on a donkey. Fundamentally different than what everybody was expecting. He, he triumphed not by vanquishing you and me as his enemies. He could have done that. He didn't do that. No, he triumphed by humbly going to the cross to pay for our sins. And that's why as Christians, we have peace with God. Instead of coming to bring judgment, he came to take away the offense, to take away your sin and my sin. And most amazingly, he did that willingly. So notice it at the beginning of our passage, it's not that the Pharisees or the Roman soldiers come and get him and bring him into Jerusalem. No, Jesus is the one who sends for the donkey. Is that not incredible? If you knew that's where you were headed, would you do that? Would you send a head for the donkey? He knows where he's headed. But see, that's Christ. When it, when it comes to the road to his execution, Jesus makes arrangements himself. He, he willingly laid down his life to pay for your sins. And that's how God's promised king has provided us with peace. And that's a king worth trusting and following, isn't it? Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful for the good news of the gospel. We understand that, that if anybody in this world had been in the place of, of our triune God, if we had been up in heaven, we would have scrapped everything. We would have judged everybody. That, that would have been it. We would have started over. Father, we're so thankful that you are so much more gracious and loving than we are. And so Father, your solution was to send your son. And Christ went willingly, not, not to conquer with a sword and, and vanquish us as his enemies, but, but to go humbly to the cross and to give his life, to give all of himself on our behalf to pay for our sins. We're so thankful for the peace that we have in Christ. We understand that there was only one person that could have secured that for us. There's only one chosen king of yours, and it's the man, Christ Jesus, who was fully man and fully God. We're so thankful, Father, that we have a king like that 
to put our full trust and hope in and to aim to follow faithfully to your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and receive the benediction. This good word from God for us from Philippians chapter 4, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.